Open your word. Let's go to the Bible. Huh? Second Corinthians chapter one, second Corinthians chapter one. And while you're opening, uh, take seriously their challenge. OK, we need to hear from you. So either fill out that welcome card with your name. And if you want to respond to any of those programs, Summerfest or any of the other needs that were mentioned, be sure and fill out your card or text in Summerfest or whatever you want to get involved in to that number. OK, all right. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the chance now to open your word together. Thank you that uh, it's a busy summer, but Father, thank you it's a summer that's not about us. Thank you, Father, that even as we pray for those um, who desperately need to hear about Christ for the first time in Mongolia and Honduras and in Rwanda and Tanzania and India and Haiti and all those places around the world, Father, we, uh, we also, Father, want to pray for Summerfest that we could deliver the great news of Christ with a loving touch to some kids in our own immediate neighborhood. And Father, today as we open your word, we're going to look at this theme of uh, pain and how you use it in a unique way, not just for our good, but for the good of others. But I pray that you make this your message. This is your word and your wisdom, not mine. So I pray that you would use it uh, to make us Christ followers that you would be proud of. We don't earn our grace. It's a free gift. But we sure want to live in response to it. So we ask you to teach us today in Christ's name. Amen. Everybody Hurts is the name of the series, Exploring the Purpose of Pain. So welcome to Seacoast. If you are a person that experiences pain, know that you are not alone. Everybody Hurts. What we've been exploring, though, is this promise from God where he says in Romans chapter 8 that God says, I promise to, to use all things together for good. Someone get that door, please. Someone's locked out. I can't lock someone out. Get the back door for me. Can someone hop up? There you go. Thank you, Mike. I see people back. Ah, I can't get into church. Welcome. Okay. I can't have that. Here we go. Thanks so much. There we go. All right. Hey, Welcome. <laughs> welcome. Everybody hurts. Therefore, we're exploring the purpose of pain. And one of the things we've been talking about is the fact that God uses it for good. But the question is, for whose good? Sometimes God uses pain for our good. Ryan taught us that last week when we saw that sometimes pain is a necessary part of our growth. It stretches us and grows us. Today, though, we're going to look at a different angle. And that is that God sometimes promises to take my pain and use it for your good. In other words, God wants us to be people who help people with their pain. Now, the trick is, how do you do that? Have you ever had the situation where you know what you think someone else needs to get healthy, to get through their pain, and they just don't seem to get it? And you're struggling to connect and help them. You ever had that happen? This guy had that happen. Watch on the screens. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop thing. trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. 
You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail. See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just sometimes it's like there's this achy. I don't know what it is. And I'm not speaking very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. <laughs> that sounds really hard. <laughs> Thank you. Ow! Come on! If you would just don't try to see things my way. Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on? us to try to learn that lesson when we're talking to someone, huh? You know, we laugh at that, but, you know, I love the fact that humor can be used to unveil truth. Because in the reality, you know, whether it's the problem of not listening well enough or trying too quick to deliver the fix when we know what the person needs to fix it. But sometimes when people are hurting, when people are in pain, they don't really need for someone to pull the nail. They need for someone first to listen and eventually, hopefully, they get to the nail. The reality is sometimes we just need to listen instead of rushing to pull the nail. Other times we need to understand that God wants to use whatever type of pain that we've gone through to help improve our ability to help others deal with theirs. Over the last few weeks, we've been unpacking this topic of what God teaches us about a healthy perspective on living on a painful planet. Let me give you the real quick highlights in case you've been on vacation. First, we dealt with the source of pain. And in fact, we looked at Romans chapter 8. And in Romans 8, here's my tagline if you wanted to remember the, the message. In Romans 8, we learned that pain is inevitable, but misery is optional and joy is available when you learn to understand the love of God and access that in Romans 8. And the reason for that is a promise that God promises to redeem what is bad for good. He doesn't say that what is bad is good, but he promises to redeem it for good in Romans 8, 28. We'll come back to that passage often. Week two, we began to we began to explore some of the individual goods that God brings from the bad. Good number one was that pain humbles me, draws me closer to God. Second Corinthians chapter 12, the thorn in the flesh passage. The big idea was that when I am weak, I discover and demonstrate the power of God. God's power is able to be demonstrated in me and for me as I understand and acknowledge my own weakness. The next week we looked at James 1 and Ryan did a great job talking about the barbells, talking about the PX, was it PX90? Was that it, right? PX, was it PY? PZ, PZ93. Anyway, whatever it was, whatever it is, you can tell I don't do it. But the reality is, is that stretching our muscles develops them. That if you want to grow stronger physically, you've got to push that muscle, whether it's your cardiac issue and your heart or whether it's your biceps or whatever it is. If you don't push beyond your comfort zone, you don't build strength. And in the same way, life is like that. When God pushes us beyond our comfort zone, then God strengthens us, at least if we respond to it. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That was the takeaway in James chapter one, verse two. Why? Because testing plus endurance equals growth. Just remember that formula. I got to be tested. I got to be pushed if I'm going to grow. So God grows us when we are tested and respond in faith with endurance. Growth 
happens. No pain, no gain. Today, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is going to explore the third type of good that God brings for my pain. Today, it's a good that may be for me, but it goes beyond me to others. Now, there's a lot of cliches about pain, and we need to be careful of falling into the cliches. And I'm not ever treating pain in a cliche kind of a way. I think sometimes the little sayings of our culture are the last thing people need to hear whenever they're hurting. But I did read a book recently by Barbara Johnson. Barbara's a gal who is now with the Lord, but, you know, she had a whole lifetime of ministry that grew out of her pain. She wrote several books um, and uh, she, you know, she just had a way she had a humor about her that I loved. And she gave some great twists on little cliches or platitudes about pain. For example, see if you know this one. See if you can complete it. Just remember that behind every dark and stormy cloud is a silver lining. But Barbara says, no, that's not true. Behind every dark and stormy cloud is a ruined hairstyle and worms on the sidewalk. (laughs) Now, that's what happens when it rains. And sometimes people need to acknowledge that that's the reality. Okay, that that is the reality. Here's another Barbara Johnson quote. When the going gets tough. Tough get going. I grew up with that one. My coaches used to teach that all the time. When the going gets tough, Barbara says, here's the better response. Come on down to the basement with me and hide. Yeah, come on. Come on over and hide in the basement with me. You know, because the first thing you need is not necessarily to to just give the platitude. A lot of times you need to go into the basement with the person that's hurting, who just feels they need to hide from the problem and, and, and spend time and Care for them, love on them, don't jerk the nail too quick, and just let them know that you care before you let them know that, you're, that there are answers. But yet eventually you want to have something to share with them that helps get them out of the basement of life and back uh, functioning above ground as God intends. So today I want to look at the passage that talks about how do we do that. How do we take what's bad in our life and have God actually use it as a basis for expanding our capacity to love other people through their pain as well. So listen to the word of God. Listen to the wisdom of God. Second Corinthians chapter one. Pick it up in verse three. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So that underline it. There's your purpose word. Okay. Purpose behind the pain and the comfort. He comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, pain happens. Paul doesn't deny it. So also... Uh, He says, just as our suffering is in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we ourselves suffer. And our hope for you, underline it, hope. Our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. I love that passage. It's a passage that talks about a different twist on why God allows pain in today's life, why he 
allows it, and then how he redeems it, not just for my good. When, he, when God says all things work together for good, that doesn't just mean my good. Often that may mean your good, my pain for your good. So what do we learn from this passage about encountering pain, finding comfort, and then being able to comfort others? That's what we're going to unpack through the morning. First of all, here's the big theme I see in verse 3 and 4. He says, as you encounter pain, focus yourself or other people on the character of God. Focus on the character of God, not your circumstances. The reality is, the more I dwell on what is happening, the more I dwell on the painful part of life, the more the enemy wants to use the pain to cause me to question God. See, the best way to undergird your faith in Christ is to attack the character of God, to mentally tempt us to begin to think things like, you know, I wonder if God is even listening, or I wonder if he is listening, if he even cares, or I wonder if, if he's listening and he cares, he sure doesn't seem to be able to fix it or to, or to pull the nail or to solve the problem. And the reality is God is there, he is listening, and he does care. How do we know that? Let me show you several things. I want to show you four little statements Most of them right out of verse four that teach about the character of our God. Here we go. Blessed be who the God and father of our Lord Jesus. He begins by focusing on the fact that your heavenly father is the father of Jesus. God knows suffering as the father of Christ. That's the first thing about the character of God. You need to know that the father gets it, that the father watched his son die. A few years ago on Easter, I was uh, trying to find a fresh way to look at the whole Easter story of the cross. And, and I realized I had preached on how the disciples viewed the cross and the mother of Jesus viewed the cross and how agnostics view the cross and, and how Jesus felt on the cross. And the one person I'd never talked about was the father. And I did a sermon on the father's view of the cross. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe next Easter here. But it was a, it was a, it helped me at least to look at scripture and to see, you know, something. This wasn't just hard for Jesus. This was hard for his father because his father had to turn his back on Christ. When Christ cried out, when Christ was uh, overloaded with our sin and our guilt, then the father had to, to distance himself and let Christ pay the price for your sin and mine. And that was not easy. He had to watch him suffer. Now, I've never gone through that with my son, but I've gone through just the tiniest little bit of it. OK, I can't relate to watching my son die on a cross. I can't imagine the type of love that it takes to 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 allow that. For the good of other people. But that's exactly what the father did. I I will tell you, I remember one of the more painful moments in my life was when my son, um, my son was probably about, oh, I would say he's about three, maybe three to four years old. So picture a toddler. I'll never forget. Here's what happened. I actually got the story wrong in the first service, but we're not going to use that tape. And my wife corrected me during the break. So you get the real story. Just don't tell the first service crowd. okay? because they enjoyed it. Here we go. The point's the same. Here's the deal. My son, Paul, picture these little pudgy hands. Right. And he wants in the bathroom and his big sister is keeping him out. So big sister is in the bathroom. So my son is pushing on the door, right? Well, he doesn't push next to the doorknob. He pushes over next to the hinged side. And before I could stop him, I watched his little pudgy thumb slip into the crack. And then his big sister on the inside, not knowing that, at least she claimed she didn't know it. You never know because big sisters are evil at times. But the reality is she finally throws her shoulder into the door and slams that door so that it 
totally locked shut with his thumb in the door. He went ballistic. Ah! You know, he screamed. We ran. I opened the door and he got his thumb out. But that thumb was just throbbing black and blue. It was so nasty. We called his pediatrician. Pediatrician said, that sounds bad enough. You better meet me at the hospital. His pediatrician said, I don't even want to trust those emergency room doctors, all due respect, to take care of this little kid. So he meets me at the hospital in the emergency room and he looks at the thumb and he says, Dale, the finger's going to be okay, but the nail's got to come off. That nail has got to come off. I said, can't we just kind of let it drop off like a tooth? He says, no, it's got to come off now. So he gets out these instruments and he shoots some Novocaine into my son's thumb, says, don't worry, Dale, he'll get it numbed up, you know. So he numbs it up. Of course, my son is crying and, and, and then he takes these things and I have to watch as he grabs my nail and he goes to pull it out. Well, guess what? Not enough Novocaine. My son goes ballistic. I'm crying. And bless his heart, my pediatrician just starts to sob because he sees the pain that my son is going through. But he says, Dale, it's, we just got to finish it. And he ripped that nail out. Now, didn't this just make your morning? You say, Dale, why do you tell stories like this? One little thumbnail. And it broke my heart. Now imagine God the Father watching Jesus go through all that he went through and then get crucified naked on a cross. And you don't tell me that the heart of God wasn't broken. Now the reason I go into this is because you need to get an accurate picture of God so that when you're suffering and you want to talk to God about your problems, you understand you've got a heavenly Father who knows suffering because he was the Father of Jesus. We'll come back to this in a minute. Number two, he not only knows suffering, he knows mercy. And that's a good thing because it's one thing to understand suffering. But if you've got a merciless heart and you don't have a compassionate heart, what good is that? But God, the father, not only knows suffering as the father of Jesus, he is a merciful heavenly father. Let me give you a quote from Chronicles. King David, who knew a little bit about suffering, having lost a child. David writes this in First Chronicles 21. He says, I'm in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. See, mercy is the ability to, to, to feel compassion, pity, to empathize. And that is our heavenly father. Number three, he not only knows suffering, he not only knows mercy. Thirdly, he knows comfort and has promised to deliver it through Christ. I love the promise about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and following. Hebrews 4 describes that when we talk to God the Father and to Jesus as his son, it says, for we do not have, referring to Jesus now, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is a sympathizer. Now, why is that? Let me read the rest of the verse to you. Just listen. It says, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near to Jesus with confidence. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. See, I love that. You don't draw near to the throne of you better be good enough to ask me to do something. It's not that throne. It's the throne of what? Say it. Grace. 
The reason I have you say it is you need to understand that God the Father and the Lord Jesus, it's the throne of grace that we draw near. So, you know, because God knows we always need grace. You don't, it's not the throne of good works. It's not the throne of I just went to church today, so God owes me something. It is the throne of grace. You understand our God is a God of grace. He's a grace of mercy and he invites us. Man, when you are hurting, I, I feel your hurt because I have been through all the different pains that you've been through and all the temptations that you've encountered. And you will find this. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, verse 16, Hebrews 4.16, if you want to write it down, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is the sympathetic high priest that we pray to. What kinds of pain did Jesus encounter? It goes way beyond just the cross. Jesus encountered every type of pain I think that you can imagine. Physical pain without a doubt as he was whipped and beaten and suffered and crucified. But even beyond that, Jesus encountered emotional pain. Jesus encountered relational pain. Jesus was rejected by his own family. They didn't believe in him until after he had rose from the dead. Jesus was rejected by his family, except for his mother. His mother believed, but yet his mother watched him die. Jesus experienced the pain of hanging on a cross, looking down at his mom and knowing that his mom was already a widow and knowing that his mom was about to lose her oldest son, the only son who really got it. Jesus had the rejection of his closest followers. Jesus was lied about. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus was misquoted, abused. I mean, you can can just kind of think it through. He had physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain. He was falsely accused, abused, hung naked on a cross in front of a crowd, never married, no kids, and then deserted by his friends. You see, that is pain. Jesus says, Therefore, because of that, bring it to me. I get it. I get it. Your God, no matter what happens when you pray, He knows suffering. He knows mercy. He knows pain. He also knows the cross. Because He understands what it feels like to bear the sins of the world. Now, this is a level of pain that I have never really found a way to describe any better than a quote uh, in a book by Johnny Erickson Tata. I have two books I want to recommend today, and if you are smart, you will write them both down and read them. Because if you don't need them now, you will. This is called When God Weeps. Uh, It's by Johnny Erickson Tata uh, and uh, Steve Estes, her pastor. Uh, the other one I'll come to later, but I really like this book. You may not agree with everything in it, but boy, it'll stretch your thinking about pain. So what is Jesus? What did Jesus go through for you on the cross? That's the question. It's easy to say, well, he bore the sins of the world. He paid the penalty. He bore the wrath of God, the punishment for the sins of humanity. Here's how this book tries to give us a description. It says, The Savior is now thrown to men quite different from the eleven. The face that Moses had begged to see, the face of God, was forbidden for Jesus. The very face of God now in Jesus was slapped bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his own brow. His back and buttocks and the rear of his legs felt the whip. 
so that soon they look like a plowed Judean field outside the city. He then shifts gears and he says, but these physical pains are a mere warm up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day on the cross, an unearthly foul odor begins to waft. Not around his nose, but around his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of the father's eye begins to turn brown with rot. His father... He must face his heavenly father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed and shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him like this. Never felt even the least of his hot breath. But now the roar shakes the unseen world and it darkens the sky. The son does not recognize these eyes of the father. Son of man, why have you behaved so, says the father? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, misobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. All the duties you have shirked, the children that you have abandoned. Who has, ever, who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk you are. Who, you who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions and traded in slaves, relishing every morsel and bragging about it. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you now feel my wrath? Of course, the Son of God was innocent. He is blameless. But the Father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The Father watches as his heart's treasure The mere image of himself sinks, drowning in raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored wrath against humanity from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it. The Son of God endured it. The Spirit of God enabled it. The Father rejected the Son whom He loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. 
The father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue, I would say your rescue, my rescue, was accomplished. God set down his saw. This is the God who asks you to trust him when he calls us to suffer. You see, I wanted to read that. I don't like to read long quotes. But you've got to remember, and I've got to remember, that when God says, all things work together for good for those who love me and are called according to my purpose, that when we begin to believe that and base our life on that, when we're hurting, that it often makes no sense unless you fast forward to Romans 8.28 to fast forward to Romans 8.32. Because the rationale builds an argument as to why that can be believed when the circumstances of your life and the unanswered prayers of your life cause you to be tempted to doubt and question the love of God. And here's what the argument ends with. He says, for if God is for us, verse 31, Romans 8, 31, then who can be against us? Well, how do you know God's really for you? Because he who did not even spare his own son, but delivered him up. For us all, how will he not freely with him give us all things? In other words, if if God loved you enough to sacrifice the very best that he had, his son, for you and me, if God loved you enough to let that happen, then God says, so when you encounter your smaller issues in this life, trust me, I love you. I will work it together for good. So understanding the depth of what the father and the son did on the cross is the rational, reasonable reason to believe outlandish promises like I will cause all things to work together for good, which on the surface will feel at times ridiculous. But it's not. And when I'm doubting and questioning, if I look at my circumstances, I'll doubt and question more. If I look to the cross and remember what the Father and the Son did for me on the cross, it's that basis on which I believe my God knows pain and my God really cares. So our God knows the cross. He knows suffering. He knows mercy. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus and the God of all comfort. That's why we go there whenever we hurt. But as we do, there's a second side to this whole passage. If that's where we need to focus to find comfort and encouragement and hope, then what happens next is God now, as you pass through your pain, point two in your outline, you now can gather some gifts from God. And there are three things that God gives you when you trust him through a painful experience. I call them gifts from God. There are three. I'm going to hit them real fast. Number one, they're really unpacked in one little verse. Look at verse four again. Look at verse four. He says, God who comforts us in all our afflictions so that here are the gifts. We will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you see the three gifts? Here they are. The gift of greater ability. The gift of greater ability to help others. He says it's only when you encounter pain and you experience the comfort and hope of God that you have a greater ability so that you might be able to help others. 
The reality is, for in a lot of cases, to be blunt, someone may have a nail in their head, and unless you've been there and had a nail in yours, they will never listen to you. Or at least you won't have as much credibility. Okay, hopefully they would. Okay, they just pulled the nail, right? I kept saying, pull the nail. But the reality is, when you go through something, God uh, expands your ability. Secondly, he, he gives you the gift of broader opportunity, therefore. Verse 4 says that you might help those who are in any affliction. It, it expands your capacity to help others because of what you've been through. You know, you can help those who are going through exactly what you're going through, but you also have the ability to, to help others as well. Uh, in this congregation, in every room with this many people, I guarantee you almost every type of human pain and suffering is represented in this room. Now, there are some things that just because of our culture may not be here. But the reality is different types of loss, different types of pain are represented in this room. I was in a previous church one time and it was a small church. And so I just uh, I just said, OK, so just in a word or two, speak out what kind of pain God has taken you through. And by his grace, you've survived it. And people began first to be bold enough to kind of speak the, the ones that are more common. I heard people, one person yelled out divorce. Drug addiction, death of a spouse, cancer, unemployment. And then someone said death of a child. Alcoholism, paralysis for life. Someone else said rape. Someone else said bankruptcy. And then the room just kind of got quiet when one man, I'll never forget, he was seated on my left toward the back. And just with a clear, loud voice, he said, the murder of my son. And the room just kind of stopped. And the reality is, if I did that right now, all those things I just mentioned are in this room and more. So when we realize that, OK, wow. OK, so God, pain happens. But the, the, one of the goods that God wants to bring from pain is that is to take the collective experience of this room and use it to make us a people, a congregation that is more effective at helping others who are in pain because someone in this room has been where you are today. We just need to be open to saying, God, would you use my pain for the good of others, even if I still hurt? One author, Randy uh, Posh, write this. Experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. Experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. And it's those painful experiences that are often the very best gifts from God if God then opens up opportunity. Greater ability, broader opportunity. Let me just show you a story of just one. I love testimonies from real people. Uh, Leah Firth in our congregation is just a real down-to-earth lady, and she's trusting Christ, but she's had some pain. So we asked her to video a little bit of her story. Here's just one story from Seacoast. My name is Leah Firth, and I just want to share with you about a couple of the trials I've gone through in my life. God's sovereignty is the pillow I lay my head upon. I can offer this comforting truth to others because of the many areas in my life in which God has helped me. I want to share two of these areas with you. The first area was in my struggle with eating. 
I was a chubby child, a fat teenager, and an obese adult. I ate my way to 300 pounds by the time I was 40. Even though I was popular in school, all I wanted was to have a normal body and normal eating habits. I became a nurse, a wife, and a mom. My family was my delight, but I was trapped in binge eating and shame. Because I was a Christian, I felt an extra load of guilt at the witness I was to others. I begged God for help. Are you listening? Do you care? Looking back, God did provide ways of escape, and I partially listened. Finally, I completely surrendered, and when God asked, Do you want to be well? I held out my withered hand. He took it and led me to the narrow passageway of recovery. For me, I learned that like an alcoholic, I can't take that first drink. There were foods I had to avoid. All addictions are difficult, but from the others you completely abstain. With eating, you need to face food every day. I did what God showed me. Sometimes I still struggle that the way I live is different than others. I feel sorry for myself and ask God, will I ever be able to eat like normal people? Now I want to give you a glimpse into my marriage. John and I were married when I was 25. I wish you could have known him. He was an intelligent man. I was impressed by how he did the daily crossword puzzle in pen at record speed. He became the president of an engineering company. When he came to the Lord later in life, he couldn't get enough of God's word. He wrote lessons for the adult Sunday school class that he taught. Progressively, he became slower in his movements and he became fatigued. The diagnosis of Parkinson's disease entered our world. As time went by, he couldn't drive. Then he couldn't cut his meat or walk alone. Soon I was showering him and it brought tears to my eyes watching him labor with the crossword puzzle. It was sad watching John diminish before my eyes. We talked about the for better or for worse in our marriage vows and decided this was the better. Somehow there was no need to be right anymore or to waste our times with hurt feelings. The struggle came when I wasn't getting sleep. I was so tired. I would lay on the floor with outstretched arms, exhausted. God, I can't do this anymore. I had been squeezed into the narrow passageway of serving, and I just couldn't do it anymore. Sometimes life hurts. Life hurts. We hear in a little bit how God used those circumstances in Leah's life, though, to expand her capacity. So you get greater ability to help others. You get broader opportunities to help others. But the third thing you get is deeper empathy to care for others. You get a deeper amount of empathy because of the pain that you've experienced. People who hurt little often struggle to really care. The best caregivers in the world are usually those who have been through pain. It's part of how God deepens our empathy as well. There is a great saying that says this. There is a stewardship of pain. This is my big point. That God never wastes a hurt, or at least he doesn't want to. 
There was a stewardship of pain. We talk about the stewardship of money. God gives us money. He wants us to use it for his kingdom and give that back to him and let him use that. God gives us talents and abilities, and we want to use that. But God also wants us to view our pain in the same way. It's a possession that can be leveraged for the kingdom of God if we let him do it. Now, I knew that the final message, the final section of today would be shortened down by time. So I actually gave it to you. Okay, and that is this. So as you encounter others, how can you be a messenger of hope? And verses five through eleven really unpack about five or six, actually six different points. So I've already typed them out for you. So go home, read those verses and you're going to see those things taught in those verses. But the one that I want to focus on is the one about hope. That you need to realize that Paul says in verse 8 that our hope is sure and tested. He says in verse 8, our hope is sure and tested. And then he later says our prayers can make a difference. Those are two great points there at the end. But let me focus on this issue of hope and prayer. There we go. Hope and prayer. Let's talk about hope. What do you mean by the hope is sure and tested? I think it's tested in the sense that we have experienced the... um, uh, we have experienced what it means. Paul says, I have been there and I have placed my hope and my faith in Christ and to the Father who is the Father of the Lord Jesus, the God of all mercy, the Father of all comfort, and I've seen him deliver for me. And therefore, I know that he will deliver for you if you trust him. And that encouragement is what we need. So often, I, I'm disappointed whenever, uh, as much as we want to... Um, to allow one another to experience pain, I'll hear stories about a person going through a hard time and they share that struggle with a friend and, and their friend will say, oh, you know, I just don't see how you survive that. I think if that happened to me, I would just fall apart. Um, or they say, you know, I'll pray for you. And that's all they say. And by the way, saying I'll pray for you is a good thing. But we also need to be willing to go into the basement of pain with people, sit with them, love on there, empathize with them. But ultimately, we've got to share with them. Guess what? I really believe there is hope for you. There is life on the other side of whatever it is you're going through right now. And I know it's hard and I know it's tough and it may be years until you get there. But you know something? Do not lose hope. We as Christians need to deliver that message to one another. That's what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in verses 4 through 11. It's full of expressions of why we can say to people there is hope in, in Christ and you need to not give up and I will hang with you. But sometimes it takes years to get there to where you look back on your pain and you feel that now you're kind of at a point where there's a sense of peace and understanding, and, uh, and you get it. I told you I brought two books today that are my favorites to give to people in pain. One is God, um, one is uh, Erickson, uh, Tata and Estes, When God Weeps. The other one is this one. It's called A Grace Disguised. A Grace Disguised. It's, a, it's written by Jerry Sitzer. Um, it's a great book written by a guy who lost his family in an accident. I'll have to just kind of tell you the short version of the story, but basically he loads his minivan up with his young family, his wife, his mother, uh, there are four children, 
He takes off to go home. He rounds a curve. He sees a car in the distance coming at him at a high speed. He slows up to try to avoid it. But the reality is there's a drunk behind that other wheel. That drunk is hidden. They'll learn later in the investigation was doing about 85 miles per hour coming into that curve. That drunk lost control, jumped the curb, head on into his minivan. He wakes up and he says this. He says, the scene was chaotic. I remember the look of terror on the faces of my children and feeling the horror that swept over me when I saw the unconscious and broken bodies of Linda, my wife, my four-year-old daughter, Diana Jane, and my own mother. I remember getting Catherine, then eight, David, then seven, John, then two, out of the van through my door, the only one that would open. I remember taking pulses, doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, trying to save the dying while calming the living. I remember the feeling of panic that struck my soul as I watched Linda, my mother, and my daughter all die before my eyes. I remember the pandemonium that followed. And he goes on to recount the rest of the story. He says, the torrent of emotion swept away the life I had cherished for so many years. In one moment, my family, as I had known and cherished it, was obliterated. The woman who I had loved for two decades was dead. My beloved Diana Jane, our third born, was dead. My mother, who had given birth to me and raised me, was dead. Three generations gone in an instant. It's a good book because it's a very real book, but it's a book that also talks about healing and hope and grief. I love the ending of the book, though, and that's what I wanted to end today's message with. Was in the very ending of the book, looking back in time more recently, This is the ending of an updated version of the book. Jerry writes this. He says, I happen to be enjoying a period of equilibrium and peace. That is now. I see the course of my life, the course my life has taken as if sitting atop a mountain pass that provides a clear view of where I have come from and where I'm going. It may not always be so. But I have this sense that the story God has begun to write, he will finish. That story will be good. The accident remains now as it has always been. A horrible experience that did great damage to us and so many others. It was and will remain a very bad chapter. But the whole of my life, is becoming what appears to be a very good book. See, I love that perspective. The honesty of saying that that painful time remains and will always be a very bad chapter. But it's not the end of the story. And that's why hope in Christ offers the promise that God says, you know something, that is a very bad chapter. But God is writing A very good book in your life. Will you believe him? Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the good truth that you are showing us. Thank you that we can take bad chapters and turn them into good books.
whenever we trust Christ and put our faith in Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. And I want to take just a minute as the band comes and ask Leah to join me for just a couple minutes. Because I want to ask Leah a couple quick questions. And she graciously offered to come up and talk to us. And we don't have much time, Leah, but, you know, they heard your story. And thanks so much for sharing that. But I just want to ask you a couple quickie questions. One is, so how did God deliver the comfort to you? What was the secret to God helping you, especially in this area of your struggle with food? Well, the first thing was he directed me to 12-step programs, of which Celebrate Recovery was the best. And I met a friend there that had a common struggle, and we decided to follow this food plan. And the reason I brought this show and tell... Yeah, tell me about the fun. Because just like Christ tells us, narrow is the way, and then it opens to abundant life. And narrow was the way for me to be willing to follow this food plan. And yet now my life is abundant and I'm free from that slavery. So, yeah. yeah. So how have you seen this experience broaden your ministry to other people? Well, this experience, I, I can come alongside people that are caregivers or struggle with eating because they know I understand. I've been there. Yeah. And with caregiving, it's the same thing. And always point people to God and to his word because I, I don't know anything. Yeah. So, and, and people are watching. They yeah. watch. And, yeah. and so that's a help. Yeah, because you talk to people at the gym all the time, right? Right. And yeah, you spend more time at the gym than I do. And, that's, uh, <laughs> and it's great to just picture you at the gym working out, talking to people, and uh, being able to say, you know something, I've been there. I've been there. So give us one example of, of, um, of an opportunity you've had to walk alongside of someone who was hurting. Well, um, I was doing a Bible study, and Peggy was in my Bible study, and during that time, her husband had a sudden stroke. And I was able to come alongside her right away, and she knew I understood because I was caring for John at the time. Yeah. And then when John passed away, I was able to give her lots of equipment plus I was able to go give her respite and to listen because people don't want to hear. They want you to listen. So don't pull the nail too quick. Right. 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 Let me pray. Father, thank you for Leah. Thank you for her gracious willingness to share her story on the video and to come up here. Thank you for her ongoing ministry. That uh, not only Leah, but all of us, we have pain in our life for a purpose. So, Father, please broaden our abilities, our opportunities, empathy, and use us to uh, deliver the good news of Christ to hurting people. May we be that kind of a church. And, Father, even as we prepare to give, thank you that uh, even our giving of what you entrust to us can be an act of empathy and compassion. We pray that you would expand our touch around the world and around all of North County. May we be people full of hope because we believe in the Father of all comfort, the God of all mercy, and the Lord Jesus. So we thank you. Thank you for using our pain for the good of others. In Christ's name, we give to you now. Amen. Would you thank Leah for sharing today? Thanks, Leah.